the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after four o'clock is our time. Today we're going to talk with Daniel Darling. He is the author of The Characters of Christmas, The Unlikely People Caught Up in the Story of Jesus. It's a great book to contemplate as we anticipate celebrating the incarnation of Christ as it walks through some of the characters, some better known, some more obscure, that make up the Christmas story. So Daniel Darling will join us at five o'clock this afternoon. Taking a look at some of the day's headlines, Pete Buttigieg, whose popularity has surged in the polls in recent weeks, suddenly found himself the target of attacks on Wednesday night's fifth Democratic primary debate. He stayed focused, however, on appealing to the country's political middle with a blunt rebuke of Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All plans. Several other candidates joined Buttigieg in going after the health care overhaul plan, putting the party's far left candidates on their heels over what he called their divisive and unrealistic approach. Reflecting on the ever-shifting dynamic in the race, meanwhile, Joe Biden had a mixed performance, projecting foreign policy strength and siding with Buttigieg against the liberal wing of, on health care, while also suffering some, well, stumbles. Until recently, he was the unrivaled front-runner in the race. However, on Wednesday, he had, a compl- had to compete for attention with three other top-tier candidates, Warren, Sanders, and now Buttigieg, but flubbed when he erroneously stated in front of Senator Kamala Harris that he had the support of the only black woman elected to the Senate. He meant to say the first. And in a moment that raised eyebrows, uh, the former vice president also said it's important to keep punching at the problem of domestic violence, noting that it's rarely needed for men to hit women in defense, in self-defense. Rarely needed. Not his brightest moment. Gordon Sondland, the U.S. ambassador to the European Union, tied top officials to the potential quid pro quo involving U.S. military aid to Ukraine and investigations desired by President Trump during his highly anticipated impeachment hearing testimony on Wednesday. Still, Sondland testified he never heard the president himself mention any preconditions involving Ukraine. Sondland claimed he kept Secretary of State Mike Pompeo aware of what was going on and said he specifically told Vice President Pence he had concerns the military aid to Ukraine had become tied to investigations. And he repeatedly lambasted the President's lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, his leading role in the administration's Ukraine dealings. Aides to Pence, the vice president, and Pompeo denied Sondland's claims on Wednesday. Giuliani pushed back on his ambassador's testimony, tweeting he came into this at the request of then-Ukraine envoy Kurt Volker. Sondland is uh, speculating based on a very little contact, Giuliani tweeted. I never met him and had very few calls with him, mostly with Volker, end quote. Well, one of the key witnesses in the Democrat that impeachment inquiry against Trump, Sondland, was seen as a wild card going into Wednesday's hearings. He had given testimony behind closed doors that conflicted with others and recently offered amended statements that contradicted his previous testimony. Take it in there entirely. Sondland's statement went, statements, plural, Wednesday, are likely to fuel the narratives of both Democrats and Republicans. And that has already 
started. Well, the public hearing and the impeachment inquiry of the president uh, continued today with testimony from Fiona Hill, a former top National Security Council expert on Russia, and David Holmes, a State Department official. Uh, Hill played a central role in the July 10th meeting at the White House in which Sondland and acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney allegedly told Ukrainian officials that Trump would meet with Ukrainian President uh, Zelensky if Zelensky would agree to investigate the Ukraine uh, business dealings of former Vice President Joe Biden and his son Hunter Biden. At that meeting, Hill said, former National Security Advisor John Bolton immediately stiffened and ended the meeting. In his closed-door testimony, Holmes told lawmakers he overheard a phone call between Trump and Sondland in which he heard the president ask the ambassador how the investigation was going. More on that uh, later this hour. Department of Justice Inspector General Michael Horowitz reports on allegations of Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act or FISA warrant abuse during the 2016 election will be released on December 9th. Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Lindsey Graham told Fox News on Wednesday during an appearance on Hannity. Host Sean Hannity noted Horowitz will be coming before Graham's committee on the 11th of December to testify on the matter and went on to ask Graham not to allow a Friday night document dump that could muffle the coverage of the news. In response, Senator Graham smiled and nodded. It'll be December 9th. You'll get the report, the South Carolina lawmaker said. That's locked. Embattled UAW President Gary Jones has resigned after GM sues rival uh, rivals over union bribery and Ukraine. The criminal investigation is um, widening into Biden-connected Burisma. DNA tests of a child has now confirmed that Hunter Biden cheated on his dead brother's wi- or with his dead brother's widow. And that became an issue in the debate last night uh, and in uh, interviews with the former vice president today. U.S. House has passed the Hong Kong rights bill. The president is expected to sign it. And Senate, uh, the Senate reported that the U.S. taxpayers have unwittingly funded China's economy and military for decades. You can read more at the Daily Wire. And the Department of, J- of Justice Inspector General has found numerous issues with the FBI management of secret sources. An Illinois school district is giving transgender students unrestricted access to bathrooms and children are being locked away alone and terrified in schools across Illinois. Often it's against the law. And uh, Jesse Smollett, he's filing suit against Chicago for malicious prosecution. On this day in history, 1922, Rebecca L. Felton, a Georgia Democrat, is sworn in as the first woman to serve in the U.S. Senate. Her term, the result of an interim appointment, would end the following day when Walter F. George, the uh, winner of a special election, took office. On this day in history in 1931, the universal horror film Frankenstein, starring Boris Karloff as the monster and Colin Clive as his creator, is first released. On this day in history, 1985, the U.S. Navy intelligence analyst Jonathan J. Pollard is arrested, accused of spying for Israel. Pollard would plead guilty to espionage and be sentenced to life in prison. He would be released on parole November 2015. On this day in history, 1992, U.S. Senator Bob Packwood, a Republican from Oregon, issued an apology but refuses to discuss allegations that he'd made unwelcome advances toward 10 women over the years. Faced with a threat of expulsion, Packwood eventually would resign from the Senate in 1995, three years later. On this date in 1995, Balkan leaders meeting in Dayton, Ohio, initial a peace plan to end more than three years of ethnic fighting in Bosnia, 
Herzegovina. And in 1997, UN arms inspectors returned to Iraq after Saddam Hussein's three-week standoff with the United Nations over the presence of Americans on the team. And finally, on this day in 2017, Zimbabwe's President Robert Mugabe, 93, resigns while facing impeachment proceedings. He had been placed under house arrest by the military. Mugabe died in September in Singapore at age 95. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 19 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Later in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Daniel Darling. He's the author of The Characters of Christmas, The Unlikely People Caught Up in the Story of Jesus. I know it's a bit early, but if you're looking for some great resources to carry you through the early days leading up to the celebration of the birth of the Savior, this might be one to consider. The book is published by Moody. Well, former National Security Council aide Fiona Hill clashed with Republicans during today's uh, Trump impeachment inquiry hearings after accusing some lawmakers of embracing a fictional narrative that only Ukraine and not Russia interfered in the 2016 elections, igniting a fierce response. The testy proceedings at the Capitol also included testimony from David Holmes, a U.S. State Department official in Ukraine, who described how he overheard a phone call this summer with President Trump about wanting Ukraine to conduct political investigations. Holmes testified that he eventually understood that demand to be linked to delayed military aid. The White House uh, countered, as it has uh, in prior hearings, that the witnesses did not speak to any uh, to any direct knowledge of the aid holdup, while GOP lawmakers dismissed the the alleged offense rather as nothing more than a thought crime. But Hill irritated Republicans from the outset Thursday by saying in her opening statement, based on questions and statements I have heard, some of you on this committee appear to believe that Russia and its security services did not conduct a campaign against our country and that perhaps somehow, for some reason, Ukraine did. Well, throughout the day, Republicans repeatedly addressed her claims. The top Republican on the committee, Representative Nunez, he pushed back by holding up a copy of the GOP-led Intelligence Committee's 2018 report on Russian Um, active measures, finding that Russia interfered in the 2016 election. What you just said was not true, but you felt the need to put it in your eight-page statement, Representative Mike Turner uh, told her. New York Representative Elise Stefanik uh, said, not a single Republican member of this committee has said that Russia did not meddle in the 2016 elections. She apparently struck a nerve. Ohio Representative Brad Winstrup told Hill her statement was false, saying she was just repeating Mr. Schiff's narratives, referring to the Democratic Committee chairman. That's where you've heard it. We did a whole uh, report on it. Well, the transcript of Trump's uh, uh, July 25th call with Ukrainian President Zelensky, a moment at the heart of the impeachment um, uh, probe, shows Trump asking for a favor in the form of Ukraine providing information about hacking the DNC server in 2016. He referenced CrowdStrike, a cyber firm used by the DNC to investigate the attacks. Hill acknowledged in her testimony that her comments were in reference to those allegations. These fictions are harmful, even if they are developed for purely domestic political purposes, she uh, went on to say. If the president or anyone else impedes or subverts the national security of the United States in order to further domestic political or personal interests, that is more than worthy of your attention. She later, though, acknowledged that reporting from a 2017 political story indicated Ukrainian officials sought to curry favor with the Clinton campaign. 
uh, they bet on the wrong horse. They bet on Hillary Clinton winning the election, she said, noting some officials disparaged Trump, but drawing a distinction between those issues and Russian meddling. Democrats have dismissed the notion that Ukraine played a role in the 2016 race. But Republicans throughout the hearing have repeatedly asked witnesses about a separate Ukraine-related allegation involving Alexandra Chalupa, a former Democratic National Committee consultant who allegedly had meetings during the 2016 campaign with officials at the Ukrainian embassy in D.C. to discuss incriminating information about Trump campaign figures as detailed in the political story. At the same time, certain Ukrainians did work against campaign Trump, Winstrup uh, said, some with the DNC. Well, Nunez, the top Republican on the Intelligence Committee, accused Democrats during the hearing of improperly redacting Chalupa's name from the deposition transcripts and refusing to let Americans hear her testimony as a witness in these proceedings. The Russian probe in the 2016 election were frequently referenced by Nunez in the hearing. He'll acknowledge that she knows Christopher Steele, the author of the infamous dossier of conspiracy theories about Trump, and was shown an early copy of the document. Referencing the Democrat-funded dossier, Nunez asked both Hill and Holmes if they think it's appropriate for political parties to send operatives into foreign countries to dig up dirt on their opponents. Both said no. The testimony came on the last scheduled day at this time of open impeachment hearings before the Intelligence Committee, which hosted a spree of five hearings spread across three days this week. The inquiry at its core has focused on how Trump pressured Zelensky to announce investigations related to the Bidens. Holmes, the U.S. State Department official in Ukraine, testified about a September 8th conversation with Bill Taylor, the top diplomat in Ukraine, uh, told him Trump's advisors wanted Zelensky to co- to commit to going to uh, on American television to announce an investigation. This was a demand that President Zelensky personally commit on a cable news channel to a specific investigation of Trump's political rival. Holmes said, adding, I was shocked the requirement was so specific and concrete. At least that's what he was told. The interview never happened and the aid was eventually released, a fact that Republicans have cited to counter Democrats' allegations. Well, speaking to lawmakers, Holmes said he eventually got the clear impression that the hold on aid was likely intended to prod Ukraine over the desired investigations related to former Vice President Joe Biden's role in the ouster of a prosecutor who had been looking into Ukrainian energy company Burisma Holdings, where his son Hunter was on the board. Hill said Thursday it was clear Burisma was code for the Bidens. Well, Trump was has maintained, rather, there was no quid pro quo. However, the Republicans uh, and Republicans, I should say, have panned such uh, witness assertions as speculations. They were not firsthand knowledge. Well, these two witnesses, just like the rest, have no personal or direct knowledge regarding why U.S. aid was temporarily withheld, White House Press Secretary Stephanie Grisham said in a statement. But Holmes offered a firsthand account all the same of how he overheard a July 26th call between Trump and European Union Ambassador Gordon Sondland, where the president asked Sondland whether Zelensky was going to conduct the investigations he wanted. Well, Holmes said Sondland, who was in Ukraine for meetings began the call by telling Trump that Zelensky loves, well, your expletive. I then heard Trump, uh, President Trump, um, Mr. Holmes went on to say, ask, so he's going to do the investigation. Ambassador Sondland replied that he's going to do it, adding that President Zelensky will do anything you ask him to, Holmes said. 
There was no clarification on which um, investigation the president was referring to if what was overheard was accurate. Holmes explained how he heard the call, saying while Ambassador Sondland's phone was not on speakerphone, I could hear the president's voice through the earpiece on the phone. Uh, the president's voice was very loud and recognizable, and Ambassador Sondland held the phone away from his ear for a period of time, presumably because of the loud volume. Trump in real time tweeted his skepticism, saying I have been watching people making phone calls my entire life. My hearing is and has been great, the president tweeted during the hearing. Never have I been watching a person making a call which was not on speakerphone and been able to hear or understand the conversation. I've even tried, but to no avail. Try it live, end quote. Well, on uh, Thursday, Holmes also detailed how State Department officials were frustrated with Trump lawyer Rudy Giuliani's involvement in Ukraine policy. My recollection is that Ambassador Sondland stated, uh, expletive Rudy, every time Rudy gets involved, uh, he goes and expletive everything up. Well, Hill, too, recalled comments from former National Security Advisor John Bolton describing Giuliani as a hand grenade and the issue uh, being uh, pursued by Sondland and the White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney as a drug deal that he wouldn't uh, be part of. Holmes also recalled asking Sondland uh, during that lunch if it was true that Trump uh, did not care about Ukraine. Describing that conversation, he said Ambassador Sondland agreed that the president did not uh, give much concern about Ukraine. I'm paraphrasing. I asked why not, and Ambassador Sondland stated the president only cares about big stuff. I noted that there was big stuff going on in Ukraine, like a war with Russia, and Ambassador Sondland replied that he meant big stuff that benefits the president, like the Biden investigation that Mr. Giuliani was pushing. While Hill told um, House investigators she came to realize Sondland wasn't simply operating outside official diplomatic channels, as she and others suspected, but carrying out instructions from the president. He was being involved in a domestic political errand, and we were being involved in national security foreign policy, she testified, and those two things had just diverged. Holmes also testified that she drafted a cable from Taylor, the top diplomat in Ukraine, a secretary, rather to Secretary of State Pompeo, about the importance of the security aid as it was being held up. Holmes said he didn't know the reason for the delay, but by this point, however, my clear impression was that the security assistance hold was likely intended by the president either as an expression of dissatisfaction that the Ukrainians had not yet agreed to the Burisma investigation or as an effort to increase the pressure on them to do so. Well, asked about testimony from prior witnesses, Hill took issue with how a prior witness claimed she had uh, reservations about the judgment of Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, Another NSC official who testified against Trump this week, instead, she said she worried that he lacked the political chops to navigate the increasingly heated conflict over the White House strategy. I did not feel that he had the political antenna. Opening the hearing on Thursday, House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff said lawmakers in the coming days will determine what response is appropriate after recent testimony. It will be up to us to decide whether those acts are compatible with the office of the presidency, Schiff said. Nunez, in his opening remarks, dismissed the accusation, saying, so how do we have an impeachable offense here when there's no actual misdeed and no one even claiming to be a victim? Nunez went on to say the Democrats have tried to solve this dilemma with a simple slogan, he got caught. President Trump, we are to believe, was just about to do something wrong, and getting caught was the only reason he backed down from whatever nefarious thought crime the Democrats are accusing him of almost committing. Well, Trump on Thursday railed against the proceedings as a phony impeachment hoax. He denied putting pressure on Ukraine and tweeted, I never in my wildest dreams thought my name would be in any way associated with the ugly word 
impeachment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a break and we will return in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. 36 minutes after 4 o'clock is the time. I want to remind you, coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Daniel Darling. He's the author of The Characters of Christmas, The Unlikely People Caught Up in the Story of Jesus. The book is published by Moody. You can get it before you know the season starts to do a little studying if you'd like. He'll join us at 5 o'clock. Well, after a day of impeachment hearings with some devastating developments, the fifth Democratic debate opened Wednesday night in Atlanta with everyone seeming a bit more nervous than usual, but then quickly settled into candidates delivering their respective campaign messages. And while many expected the debate to focus on attacks on the front runners, including the newly minted member of the club, South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg, that didn't happen. Senator Kamala Harris of California delivered a prosecutorial dissertation of Representative Tulsi Gabbard of Hawaii. That was the attack everyone will remember after the latter criticized the Democratic Party and Harris brought the uh, the receipts that Gabbard was never really a member of it. Uh, well, some of the winners and losers. Uh, one of the biggest winners, according to those who analyze such thing, Amy Klobuchar, overall Minnesota Senator Klobuchar, was the winner of the contest that ran over two hours. She had her best performance by emphasizing her experience, productivity, electoral success. She also emphasized the fact that women are judged by a different standard than men, citing her criticism of Buttigieg's lack of experience while he was being hailed as a front runner last week. Klobuchar pulled it all together in Atlanta with a number of um, points and lines, many familiar. But then she delivered the line of the night. If you think a woman can beat Donald Trump, Nancy Pelosi does it every single day. Or if you think a woman cannot beat Donald Trump. Klobuchar isn't a front runner and this debate won't make her one, but the senator... We'll get another look from voters due to uh, uh, last night's performance, and that puts her in a better position coming out of the debate than going in. Another surprise winner, according to some, even though it was a a, um, uneven performance, former Vice President Biden is a winner by default. Hiding in plain sight might be the best strategy for him. Biden didn't have the mistake-laden performance of past debates by receding Uh, For long stretches of the debate, still holding on to a national lead, that strategy Wednesday night will help him hold on to it for a bit longer. He largely relied on his message that he can beat Donald Trump, has the experience and can bring people together. That might be enough for now to keep him in the post position, um, but it's not going to win the nomination without a better performance in future debates and on the campaign trail. Another surprise winner, at least according to some measures, uh, Kamala Harris had her best performance in a long time. She went after Trump and Gabbard, making the a case against both in her best prosecutorial fashion. Uh, Harris may never match the electric moment she had when she uh, went after Biden in the earlier debate, but she turned in her best performance since then, one by mixing moxie and policy positions that allow Harris to uh, play for another day when she's been skating on pretty uh, uh, close to the edge of collapse. A uh, lack of consistency has been, uh, has really deviled her uh, candidacy. But on Wednesday night, she was the candidate everyone expected her to be in this campaign. Again, she's not close to being a front runner, but did have a better performance this time around. Some of the losers in the campaign, again, one perspective, running to be the Democratic nominee, criticizing the Democratic Party is not a winning strategy. Tulsi Gabbard, uh, her criticism of the party may have been her way of setting up a run as an independent in the general election, something Hillary Clinton 
uh, speculated was uh, in her future. Instead, Harris uh, disqualified her for both contests by reciting her embrace of Trump and dictators since the 2016 election. Uh, Gabbard then turned her aim at Buttigieg at the end of the debate and yet another curious attack on another Democratic candidates that has been the hallmark of her candidacy. We'll see what happens in her campaign moving forward, whether as a Democrat and independent or something else entirely. Another loser, by some measure, Pete Buttigieg was the loser in Atlanta. He had the most ga- to gain, yet uh, missed the opportunity to set himself apart from the frontier of of uh, candidates and generate even more of the momentum initiated by the latest poll. Buttigieg still struggles to address matters of race, and that was no different on Wednesday night. The fact that he uh, couldn't make the most of the debate on Wednesday um, could foreshadow his his ability to put the race uh, away later in the campaign. It's his second turn in the spotlight and under the stage lights on Wednesday night. He didn't seem to shine. Instead, he uh, turned in a uh, serviceable appearance at best, missing an opportunity he's unlikely to get again. Another loser, um, you know, this is by some measure, uh, Elizabeth Warren. Debates have been Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren's bread and butter. No one has more plans, policies or points and makes them better than Warren. Not that I agree with those plans, policies, or points, but she makes them successfully. Not on Wednesday night. For some reason, Warren didn't have it. She made better points with more detail than any of the other candidates had more time speaking, but her delivery and presence were off. A performance like those from her um, other debates would have helped Warren stem a tough week or two of poll numbers in early primary states. Instead, she'll have to hit the trail to do it. Uh, until the next debate. Also, Bernie Sanders, the independent Vermont uh, senator, didn't do anything to help himself on Wednesday night. Same lines, same attacks, same Bernie Sanders. His performance uh, means that Sanders uh, won't turn uh, his uh, drop in the polls around with the Atlanta debate. He has plenty of money to stay in the race for months to come, but that doesn't mean he's going to win a contest in the process. And that's why debates like the one on Wednesday night matter to those who are voting in the Democrat primary. Well, in every debate, New Jersey Senator Cory Booker has a moment, and that's it, a moment. It's just a moment. That's not enough for him to uh, to win a candidacy or to make a move. Booker's performance on Wednesday night isn't going to move the polls for him, and it's not likely uh, that he's going to do anything else at this point um, attempting to move forward. Also, um, Tom Steyer and Andrew Yang, neither entrepreneur, um, nor a billionaire activist were able to make a real mark in the debate uh, to make a move in the polls with voters. Uh, Steyer, he resorted to reciting lines from his TV ads during much of the debate. Yang had a few good lines, but at this point, that's a costly missed opportunity for both candidates. And of all Patrick, whose uh, hat was thrown into the ring very late, in fact, just a few days ago, the late entrant in the 2020 race, former Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick, not only didn't make the debate stage, he's also canceled an event he organized at Morehouse College in Atlanta, the site of the debate, when only two people showed up. Not not a very good showing at this point. Meanwhile, Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Lindsey Graham is uh, said on Wednesday that the Department of Justice Inspector General Michael Horowitz report is of allegations of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act or FISA warrant abuse during the 2016 election will be released on December 9th. During an appearance on Hannity, host uh, Sean Hannity noted Horowitz will be coming before Graham's committee on the 11th to testify on the matter and went on to ask Graham not to allow a Friday night document dump that could muffle the coverage of the news. Well, in response, Graham smiled and nodded. It will be December 9th. You'll get the report. 
That's locked. Well, Horowitz told congressional lawmakers in an October letter that his investigation and ensuing report were nearing their conclusion. The lengthy draft report concerns sensitive national security and law enforcement matters, Horowitz wrote in the letter, adding that he anticipated the final report will be released publicly with few redactions. Horowitz noted that he did not anticipate a need to prepare or issue separate classified or public versions of the report. After we receive the final classification markings from the department and the FBI, we will then proceed with our usual process for preparing a final report, including ensuring that appropriate reviews occur for accuracy and comment purposes, Horowitz wrote in the letter. Once begun, we do not anticipate the time for that review to be lengthy. Senator Graham further broke news on Hannity when he confirmed that he is sending a letter to Secretary of State Mike Pompeo requesting the transcripts of three phone calls the senator uh, said uh, then Vice President Joe Biden had with then Ukrainian President Petro Poroshenko. Graham said the phone calls coincided with the time frame in which a Ukrainian prosecutor once praised for going after the head of natural gas company Burisma Holdings, a person Graham said was known as the dirtiest guy in Ukraine by one top American official, was fired. Burisma was the company on which Hunter Biden, the son of the 2020 Democratic candidate, sat on the board. I want to know, are there any transcripts or readouts of the phone calls between the vice president and the president of Ukraine in February of 2016 after the raid on the gas company? president's house, Graham said. After the rape, Hunter Biden kicks in. Uh, Hunter Biden's business partner meets with then-Senator, uh, should say Secretary of State John Kerry and Vice President Biden on three occasions, makes a phone call to the president of Ukraine and goes over there in March, and they fire the guy, and this is the same man that the ambassador wanted investigated in 2015. He added he found it odd that instead of uh, lauding the Ukrainian prosecutor, Viktor Shokin, for investigating the Burisma chairman, he was instead relieved of his duties. And it continues. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 50 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, imagine that a charge was brought against you and you had to appear in court. Now, imagine that instead of having the choice of representing yourself, hiring an attorney of your choice, or being represented by a public defender, you were required to use an appointed public defender. And now, imagine that the public defender assigned to you had a polar opposite political views than yours, and that your voting and opinions were fully disclosed to that public defender. That's the case today for employees in unionized workplaces where there is a conflict. Well, even if the worker have the option not to join the union because they live in a right-to-work state or are a public employee, they nevertheless cannot be represented by anyone other than the union, including by themselves, and employee-employer relations. And their choice not to join a union is well known to the union that is supposed to represent them. Well, the Workers' Choice Act, introduced by Republican Representatives Dusty Johnson of South Dakota and Greg Murphy of North Dakota, Phil Rowe of Tennessee, would change that by ending unions' government-granted monopoly over employee-employer negotiations, otherwise known as exclusive representation. Instead, workers would be free to negotiate directly with their employer or to choose a representative outside the union. Now, this would be an important step for workers' freedom and flexibility, particularly for the increasing number of workers who do not have and do not want um, rigid jobs and inflexible schedules that often is the result of uh, these negotiations. Well, as it is today, even if a worker is in a unionized workplace, doesn't join the union, he or she cannot negotiate an alternative work schedule or different compensation 
such as uh, performance-based pay, than what the union negotiates. And if the non-union employee has a disciplinary action taken against him or her, his or her only recourse is through the union, which is unlikely to provide the same support as it would to dues-paying union members. In essence, those who aren't union members are forced to accept the terms and conditions of employment and representation by an organization that does not actually represent those workers' desires and which they may strongly oppose. Well, why would workers oppose the unions they're supposed to represent them? Well, for starters, unions tend to negotiate rigid pay scales, schedules, and promotion pathways. And while this work um, works well for factories and did in the 1930s, it's not ideal for a more service-oriented labor market in which workers want flexibility and greater opportunities. A young teacher may significantly outperform a colleague who is 20 years his or her senior, and yet that young teacher will likely receive half the pay, but last in uh, line to choose from for new opportunities and first in line to lose his or her job. Well, union-dictated pay scale also penalize high performers because unions set pay scales based on seniority instead of employees' performance. And when a giant eagle grocery store in Edinburgh, Pennsylvania, gave two dozen of its employees performance-based raises, the local 23 union took Giant Eagle to court and forced the company to revoke those workers' pay raises. Even though these um, raises were above the union-negotiated pay scale and did not reduce any other workers' wage, the union said they violated its contract because the raises resulted in some junior workers receiving higher wages than some with longer tenure, regardless of their performance. Most workers want to be paid based on the work they perform, not just how long they have worked for the company. Another reason some workers oppose unions is that they often don't use uh, members' dues for the benefit of the workers. According to the Free to Teach organization, the Pennsylvania State Education Association Teachers Union, they spent 34% of their members' dues on political activities in 2017, with those activities almost exclusively supporting one side of the political aisle and policies. Disgracefully, members' dues sometimes go toward corrupt and illegal activities. Now, according to a compilation of federal data from Bob Gilson at uh, Fed Smith, 150 federal union officials stole more than $4.5 million from members' dues between 2001 and 2018, with the average convicted official having stolen more than $30,000. Corruption isn't new. The Teamsters Union will soon end three decades of government oversight following its entanglement in the mob and it, um, its use of members' pensions funds on things such as Las Vegas casino investments. Nor has con- uh, corruption rather gone away. Recently, United Auto Workers union officials misused more than $4.5 million of workers' dues that were supposed to go toward improving opportunities and education of employees. Instead, union officials spent those funds on personal luxuries such as a $350,000 Ferrari, two $36,500 pens, hundreds of thousands of dollars in private home improvements and mortgage payments, and a $30,000 party that features strolling models uh, sparking attendees cigars. Meanwhile, the average General Motors uh, company worker lost about $4,000 of wages during the recent United Auto Workers led strike as the union pays less uh, than minimum wage for strike pay. Well, finally, many workers don't support unions because those um, unions are hostile to anyone who does not support them. This hostility can include showing up on workers' doorsteps, inflicting damage on their property, making threats against workers and their families' lives. Now, this isn't, I'm not suggesting that's true in every union, but these are reasons given why some individuals prefer not to associate with unions. And on the other uh, other side, unions should not have to represent workers who do not support them by pay 
uh, paying membership dues. Not surprisingly, unions have uh, complained about having to represent so-called free riders who quite frankly, are not free. It's time to free unions of that unfair burden and to free workers of the unfair uh, union representation they do not want. Sort of an interesting uh, interesting appeal. And then I just uh, read this on the um, uh, Christian Post. Uh, Chick-fil-A remains committed to Christian values. This is a quote from Franklin Graham saying after a call with the CEO, Dan Cathy, well, the Reverend Franklin Graham, and I'm reading from the uh, Christian Post website said he was assured by Chick-fil-A CEO Dan Cathy that the company remains committed to Christian values after the fast food chain's charity arm decided to no longer donate to three organizations criticized for upholding traditional Christian beliefs on sexuality. In a Thursday morning Facebook post, Franklin Graham, leader of Samaritan's Purse and the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, said he spoke with Kathy on the phone. Dan was very clear that they have not bowed down to anyone's demands, including the LGBTQ community. They will continue to support whoever they want to support. They haven't changed who they are and what they believe. Chick-fil-A remains committed to Christian values. Dan Cathy assured me that this isn't going to change. I hope all those who jumped to the wrong conclusion about them read this, Graham wrote. Well, after it was reported this week, the Chick-fil-A, uh, Chick-fil-A Foundation switched up its giving structure to no longer support the Salvation Army Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Um, uh, the company has faced a wave of conservative uproar in response to the decision. Now, many people have fought for Chick-fil-A and for them to capitulate to the bullies is betrayal. That's a quote from Tony Perkins with the Family Research Council, one of Washington's most prominent Christian conservative activists on his recent radio program. Donations to those organizations were the focus of much media scrutiny for Chick-fil-A after it was reported earlier this year that their foundation donated $1.8 million to uh, the two organizations. Critics label them as discriminatory because of their LGBT uh, beliefs on marriage, not their practice in excluding those who a whole different views, but the beliefs held by the organization uh, itself. Now, Chick-fil-A has itself often been criticized because its founder, Truett Cathy, voiced his opposition to gay marriage in 2012 because of Cathy's belief in traditional Christian teaching on marriage and sexuality. The company faced boycotts and condemnation from state and city leaders. Well, Graham argued, in my opinion, the gay movement wouldn't ever be happy with Chick-fil-A unless they were open on Sunday, gave all their charitable donations to LGBTQ organizations and flew the rainbow flag over their stores. Their hatred for Chick-fil-A is rooted in founder Truett Cathy's strong uh, stand on biblical traditional values and his desire to honor God, end quote. Well, a um, Biz Now exclusive on Monday revealed that Chick-fil-A Foundation altered its philanthropic structure, which made over 300 donations to one that focuses on three initiatives with one charity accompanying charity um, uh, each. So this is uh, Franklin Graham's take on what's uh, been done. I'm not sure that most people are going to buy that, but that's what was uh, told to him by the current CEO of the company. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. Then when we return in the five o'clock hour, we'll talk with the author Daniel Darling, his book, The Characters of Christmas, The Unlikely People Caught Up in the Christmas or rather the story of Jesus. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, it's that season again with the lights, the gifts, the heartwarming sentiments that make up Christmas. 
Well, is that all there is? Well, my next guest makes the point that it's easy to become caught up in the flurry of activity during this season, and it starts earlier and earlier, forgetting about who is at the center of it all. How do you recapture our love for the Christmas story, for Jesus himself, and better understand those who played a pivotal role in his birth? Well, Christmas is more than Hallmark movies and trips to Grandma's house, says my next guest, author of The Characters of Christmas. It's a celebration of the birth of the Son of God, the long-promised Messiah. It's important for us not to not get caught up simply in the sentimentality of Christmas without realizing what we're really celebrating. Well, the book, The Characters of Christmas... In it, he takes readers back in time to Christ's birth, and he looks at the unusual group of misfits and societal outcasts and those who are often overlooked in the Christmas story. He brings each one of them to life. He explores their role in the Christmas story and digs deep to reveal truths from their lives that impact believers today. Well, Daniel Darling is a prolific author, a speaker who believes Christmas music should be sung all year round. He currently serves as the vice president for communications for the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. He is the author of several books. He's also a columnist for Home Life and a regular contributor to In Touch Magazine, Christianity Today, uh, Gospel Coalition. His op-eds have appeared in places you probably frequent, USA Today, CNN, Washington Times, Time Magazine, Huffington Post, and many, many others. He joins us today to talk about his fascinating book that encourages us to look at the characters of Christmas, the unlikely people caught up in the story of Jesus. Thank you so much for joining us. I am so glad to be on here on the radio with you in Portland. Uh, great to be with you. Well, thank you, and Merry Christmas. <laughs> Merry Christmas to you as well. Well, it is easy in our culture especially to reduce Christmas to a set of um, sentimentalities and experiences that oftentimes fall short of what we're encouraged to believe Christmas is all about. Um, what, what drove you to encourage us to think about and to consider the people surrounding the story of Christmas that might hearken us back to the true meaning of the, uh, the season? And it's it's great that we have these familiar rhythms and and the same songs and the same story over and over again because I think God uses that to shape our hearts uh, and draw us toward Himself. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you know, every year we're we're wanting to uh, find new and fresh um, angles at looking at the Christmas story, and I think the Christmas story is like a multifaceted diamond, really, where there's so many there's so many things about the gospel, about the incarnation that that uh, can draw us in. And this year I wanted to see what would it look like if uh, we looked at these ordinary people whom we, we've kind of lionized at this point. We uh, They decorate our nativity scenes, uh, we, our kids dress up like them in our Christmas pageants. But in the first century, at the first Christmas, they were just ordinary people who uh, were swept up in the story of God coming to earth in Jesus. It is so interesting, the cast of characters that God chooses to play a part in this most important story in human history. And as I mentioned, and you certainly emphasize in the book, these are not the cast of characters that Hollywood would necessarily have chosen. They would quickly have overlooked them in favor of uh, the, the rich and beautiful, if you will. And yet, God strategically places these ordinary people around these events, and there's something to be learned from each one of them. You're exactly right. If you and I were writing this story, we would not have chosen the characters that are here. Uh, you think of um, the, the one chosen to be the mother of Jesus, Mary. She's a, a poor peasant Jewish girl. Uh, you think of Joseph, who's just an ordinary carpenter. Um, you think of the shepherd to, to whom the announcement came, that they were, they were just lowly shepherds. Um, we would have had 
uh, a press conference and a social media campaign and would have announced in you know in Rome or at least in Jerusalem where the religious elite were not in Bethlehem and we wouldn't have chosen people from the backwater town of Nazareth and yet this is uh, who uh, God chose this tells us something about the kingdom of God that is made up mostly of ordinary people. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's talk about some of those characters, beginning with the uh, the two that we are perhaps most familiar with. Uh, Joseph, who was chosen to um, to be the earthly father of the Son of God, um, he's, he's hand-chosen for a task that I think most of us would shrink back from. What do you think about um, Joseph being chosen for that task, and what do we know about Joseph? What can we learn from him? You know, what we know about Joseph is that he always did the next right thing. Uh, the Bible calls him uh, righteous. And, um, you know, I wanted to focus on him in, in the first chapter because I think he's often forgotten in the story. Uh, there's maybe one or two songs written about Joseph. Um, but here we see Joseph right away, even when he finds out that Mary is pregnant, he does the right thing by wanting to put her away privately. This would be the, the, the uh, instead of the more public way that to shame someone who is an unwed mother. And then when the angel comes to him, he obeys and he gets up and he makes Mary his, you know, he, he's not afraid to make Mary his wife. Um, he takes the child to Egypt when the, when the angel visits him and uh, takes Jesus to Egypt and Mary and Jesus to Egypt to, to, uh, for, their, for their rescue from Herod. Um, he was willing to father a child that was not his own. And, and think about what he was signing up for. Um, you know, Mary got an angelic visit. Joseph got an angelic visit. But the rest of their family did. And for mm-hmm. all of their lives, there'd be a shame and a stigma attached to them. Uh, and they were willing to bear that shame. Joseph was willing to bear that shame for the one who would later bear his shame. Mm. Well, let's talk about Mary. First of all, she's not even a legal adult by our standards today. She is mm-hmm. a peasant girl. She probably hasn't traveled much outside of the circles that made up her everyday life. And yet God singles her out. This obscure teenager, he singles her out from among all the women on the earth that could have been chosen, or at least from the nation of Israel, that might have been chosen for that role. What can we learn from Mary, and why did, uh, why did God choose her? You know, I think what we what we see in Mary is right from her response of, you know, first of all, why did, you know, essentially, why did you choose me? How can these things be? And that's the question we ask today. How can it be that uh, uh, Jesus could be both God and man? It's this wonderful and beautiful mystery. And yet she said yes. She said yes to God. And let's understand what she was saying yes to. Um, later, when she would bring Jesus to the temple for purification, Simeon uh, would prophesy over her and say that a sword will pierce your soul. In other words, Mary was signing up for, for a difficult lifetime of hardship, of shame. Uh, probably there was a stigma surrounding her her whole life. We even see later in the Gospels that many of Jesus' even own family and siblings didn't believe the Messiah uh, narrative. And yet she was willing to do this. Um, she would be, as a mother, she would see her son grow up. She would see him scorned. She would see him uh, reviled. She, he'd be an object of derision. Uh, he'd be unjustly tried. He'd be put on a cross. She's sitting there at the foot of the cross as he's dying and bleeding, and he's mocked as the soldiers take his body off the cross and bury him. And she did all this, and she's willing to obey God because she knew and she believed that this child uh, was the Son of God. And even though uh, she had endured hardship for, for Jesus, Jesus would endure the ultimate hardship for her and paying uh, for her sins. Mm. Let's talk about uh, another two a set of characters that there aren't many Christmas carols about, if there are any at all. And that's Zachariah and Elizabeth. Mary chooses mm-hmm. to go visit her cousin uh, while she is bearing uh, Jesus. And that's such an interesting part of the story of 
uh, Jesus incarnation. But talk a bit about Zechariah and Elizabeth and why that story is included in this uh, greatest of, of all stories. What's interesting about their story is, you know, uh, the first appearance of, of an angel comes to Zechariah in this Christmas story. So after 400 years of silence, of, of no prophets, no angels, um, uh, coming to a cynical people who had read the prophecies, but they're not really believing him because false messiahs had come, they're under the, the thumb of Roman rule. Here's Zechariah with a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to light, uh, to, to give the incense in the temple, and Gabriel appears to him and says, your prayers have been answered, your prayers for a son, your prayers for the, for the, also for a Messiah. And what we can learn from Zechariah and Elizabeth, I think, is a couple of things. I think, number one, they were well past childbearing age, and yet uh, God birthed in them a son, John the Baptist, who'd be the final prophet, who would be a forerunner of Jesus. Um, God had to silence Zechariah because of his unbelief. And I think what we learned from them is sometimes God has to put us in a period of silence and waiting mm. for us to see him work. But we also see this theme of rebirth and recreation that you see throughout the Bible. Abraham and Sarah could not have children. Hannah could not have children. Zechariah and Elizabeth. And yet God birthed something new out of what was dead. And this is something that God wants to do in each of us. He wants to birth uh, this new spiritual birth in each of us. We're talking with Daniel Darling. He's the author of The Characters of Christmas, The Unlikely People Caught Up in the Story of Jesus. And to consider each of them as we contemplate the incarnation of Christ, his birth, and uh, all of those events, the book is published by Moody. We'll continue our conversation in just a moment, but I do need to take a quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're continuing a conversation with Daniel Darling. He is a prolific writer and speaker. His latest book, The Characters of Christmas, The Unlikely People Caught Up in the Story of Jesus, encouraging us to consider the lessons that can be learned from each of these characters that were selected carefully by God to help unfold this drama, the birth of the Savior, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now, we've mentioned in a couple of these stories the appearance of angels. And in the 21st century, there are lots, there's lots of speculation about who the angels are and and uh, what their role is. But here in Scripture, we see specifically angels that have been dispatched for a singular purpose, and that is to herald the coming of the Messiah. Talk a little bit about what we can learn from the angels in the Christmas story and how significant they are. Well, you really can't tell the Christmas story without the angels, can you? Because, no, you can't. Uh, you, see, you see Gabriel there announcing to Zechariah about John the Baptist. You see uh, angels announcing to Mary that she's going to be pregnant with the, the Son of God. You see an angel come uh, multiple times to Joseph. Uh, you see an angel that go into the wise men to warn them. Um, and you just you see angels fill uh, the Bethlehem fields uh, announcing the birth of Jesus. And then all through the narrative of Jesus' life, when he's, when he's uh, in the wilderness of temptation, they're nourishing him. When he's about to be crucified, Jesus has to restrain the angels. From defending him, and then there's uh, there's an angel sitting on the on the empty uh, sitting by the empty tomb, announcing that he's risen again, and an angel there at his ascension, an angel helping to build the early church, and then at the end of the age, you see angels in heaven worshiping Jesus as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So angels are not like human. Uh, angels are not recipients of grace. Uh, angels, you know, God has humans as a special a creature who are made in his image. The gospel is for humans. It's between God and, uh, really, it's between God and his image bearers. 
But angels have a courtside seat to this entire plan of redemption. And I think what we need to do is to listen to the words of Charles Wesley when he says, Hark the herald angels sing. In other Mm. words, listen to the message that the angels are saying. Step back and look at it from their perspective of God's marvelous plan from Genesis to Revelation, this wonderful plan. And it should cause us really to worship. Oh, absolutely. Such a beautiful picture when you consider the the appearances of angels in so many significant events. I appreciate your reminding us of that thread that runs throughout human history. Now, again, some of the more obscure characters that make up the uh, the cast of those who are witnesses to or participants in the events of Christmas. Uh, let's start with the uh, with the shepherds, the innkeeper. Uh, these are people we don't know their names. We don't know necessarily how many of them there were. Um, but these are, are not people who are named, but play a significant role in um, observing and responding to the events of Christmas. Well, what's wonderful and interesting about the shepherds, I think there's a few things. I think it's highly uh, symbolic that the announcement of the coming of the Son of God doesn't come in Rome, doesn't come in uh, in Jerusalem where the religious elite are. It comes in a shepherd field to lowly shepherds. Shepherds were not uh, considered uh, high class society. They were they were had to kind of tend the sheep outside the city. Uh, But it tells us what kind of kingdom that God is establishing a kingdom. Uh, of mostly ordinary people. He comes among the lowly. But I also think it's significant because shepherding is a theme of the type of leadership that God Mm -hmm. provides throughout Scripture. God calls himself the shepherd of Israel. Uh, David says, the Lord is my shepherd. You know, Israel is rebuked for having leadership that is not, that are not good shepherds. Jesus would later call himself the good shepherd. Um, It's saying this is the kind of king that Jesus is going to be. He's not going to be like Caesar. He's not going to be like Herod. He's going to be a shepherd king who's going to sit on the throne of Israel's original shepherd king. And lastly, I think there's symbolism because uh, the announcement of the final sacrifice for sins comes to those who would tend sheep who would be used for temple sacrifice. Uh, The announcement of uh, the one whom John called the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world comes to those uh, who are tending the lambs uh, used uh, for the sacrifice. So I don't think it's um, accidental that God chooses shepherds to receive the first announcement of Christmas. Mm. Now let's talk about the innkeeper. The word is not used. We we assume some things about the individual or individuals who are responsible ultimately for housing the uh, the first the Holy Family. But what can we learn from, and what do we know about the innkeeper, if you will? Well, we don't know much, uh, and scholars debate in terms of what was what was it actually like. Uh, for Mary and Joseph, what you know, where, did they have to stay in a cave? Was it a more traditional inn, like we see in the parable of the Good Samaritan? Uh, what, did, did they have to stay with uh, family in their homes in their hometown of Bethlehem? We really don't know. But one thing we do know, Luke makes a point of saying that there was no room for him, and so um, the one for whom the one who created the world, who who fashioned humans in his image. Uh, did not have any room in the world he created. The one uh, who, for whom there was no room, though, is making room for those who put their faith in him. But there had to be somebody to tell Joseph and Mary um, that there's no room. And you can imagine the scene here. This, if there's an innkeeper or proprietor, whoever it was, he's not humming to himself, oh, holy night. Uh, he's just thinking, this is two visitors come by that I don't have room. What am I going to do? Let me scramble to make room for them. Uh, Joseph is not exactly singing Silent Night, 
when he's knocking on the door furiously trying to get a room. Uh, little did, did this the person here who's an innkeeper or whoever was there that night understand that in this place, on this night, would be a special night, a holy night, a historic night. The people who, I just imagine the people who had to sleep maybe next to Mary and Joseph or uh, people who had just happened to use choose this place to rest for the night were witnesses to the uh, historic, uh, e- eternal, life-changing evening when the Son of God was born there. Mm. You write about the wise men and the fact that we don't know that there were three, and most likely there were more of them. But I want to take a moment and focus on Herod. He's sort of the the bad guy in this story, and, and rightly labeled so. But I don't think we think much about him in this story. Talk a bit about Herod and what we can learn from his role in the unfolding of this uh, this story. Well, what's interesting about the way we think about Christmas, um, I don't know if you've noticed, but all of our Christmas stories uh, have, a, have a bad guy, right? Even, you know, think of It's a Wonderful Life, which is one of my favorites. You have Mr. Potter. Uh, you, have, um, you have the Grinch that stole Christmas. Uh, you have, uh, in the Christmas Carol, you have Scrooge. Even in our Hallmark movies that my wife makes me watch, there's always a bad person who is trying to destroy Christmas. And I think that comes from our acknowledgement that we do know that there's a battle between good versus evil. And in the original Christmas, Herod is the bad, original bad guy. He's threatened by the presence of Jesus. So instead of acknowledging Jesus as king, he's threatened and he goes and commits violence against young baby boys. But what he doesn't also realize is that he is just in a long line of antichrists throughout the ages who raise up against God's plan. This was prophesied in Genesis when, when God said that the seed of the serpent would nip at the heels of the seed of the woman, but the seed of that woman would one day crush the serpent. And so Herod thought he had power. Everyone in Israel thought Herod had power. Everyone was afraid of him. But the real power was that infant baby that fled to Egypt as a refugee who would one day uh, crush the head of the serpent. Mm. Well, let's uh, let's talk about two others who are rarely mentioned when we're talking about um, the Christmas story, Simeon and Anna. It seems almost like a side story, and yet it's significant because they had a long view looking back and considering the promises that had been made. Well, Simeon and Anna kind of appear out of nowhere on the pages of this story. Uh, but what we know about Simeon is that he was someone who, unlike everyone else, it seems, in Israel, had read, really read and understood the prophecies and had really taken them literally when it said, unto us a child must be born. And then he's reading in Micah that this Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And so he's waiting and he's waiting at the temple. People probably think he's crazy. There's that old guy over there. He really believes these prophecies. You know, very similar to today when people uh, say about Christians, oh, they think Jesus is going to come again. That's really great. I don't think it's going to happen. But here he is. He's believing those. And he's asking the Lord to show him which couple and which baby um, is the Messiah. And one day the Spirit whispers to him, this couple here, this baby. And so he goes and he blesses Mary and Joseph and he blesses Jesus. But then he says something interesting. He says, now I can die. In other words, once you've had an encounter with Jesus, you are at peace with your life and at peace with facing your own mortality. Which I think is a lesson and a powerful truth for all of us. He could, he could face death because Jesus himself, that baby, would face death on the cross and defeat it. Um, And then we have Anna, who uh, we know even less about, but we know she was a prophetess. We think she was a widow who, uh, in those days, there was no social safety net, so she probably uh, was very poor. She, too, was waiting in the temple and believing those prophecies. Probably they thought she was crazy. Here's this old woman over there. Uh, Bless her heart. You know, she 
she thinks this is really going to happen, but she believed. And it, both of these, Anna and Simeon, show us that God comes to those who seek him. God comes to those who wait on him. And I think that's a lesson for us this Christmas. Absolutely. Once again, the book is titled The Characters of Christmas, The Unlikely People Caught Up in the Story of Jesus. And there are 11 chapters. You could uh, study them for the 12 days of Christmas. The book is published by Moody and a great study as we anticipate celebrating the incarnation of Christ. Daniel Darling, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. It's great to be here on the radio with you in Portland, and I hope you have a Merry Christmas. Thank you. You too. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show on this actually a rather beautiful Thursday afternoon. Well, a jury in San Francisco District Court found pro-life activists David Delighton and Sandra Merritt guilty of conspiracy to commit fraud, breach of contract, and trespass in violation of the state and federal recording laws. Wow. Well, Delighton and Merritt and their Center for Medical Progress obtained undercover footage, you might recall, of abortion industry workers, including Planned Parenthood, discussing arrangements to illegally profit from the fetal body parts of aborted babies. There's very little interest in what they uncover. They're only interested in Planned Parenthood being exposed. One can imagine the outcry if undercover activists were similarly punished for exposing, say, the routine mistreatment of animals. Now that's something worth pursuing in the 21st century in America. Well, the videos, the first of which uh, they released in the summer of 2015, showed all sorts of horrifying things. Again, no interest in that. Planned Parenthood medical um, directors haggling over the price of fetal baby body parts over a lunch of salad and wine. Another joking about upping the cost of certain organs so she could afford a Lamborghini. That's pretty funny. Abortionists admitting to altering late-term abortion procedures, which is illegal, in order to improve their odds of obtaining intact and thus more valuable fetal body parts. Industry workers conceding they had contracts to sell fetal tissue and describing in graphic detail their efforts to conduct post-viability abortions without violating the ban on partial birth abortion. A former clinic worker saying she'd been tasked with harvesting organs from an infant whose heart was still beating. There's no interest in that. There are no charges related to that. All of this was evidence not only of cavalierly dehumanizing behavior in the abortion industry, which I suppose is absolutely necessary if you're going to engage in the kind of activity they're involved in on a daily basis. But more specifically, that several Planned Parenthood affiliates had arranged to receive a profit from biotech firms for the transfer of fetal tissue from aborted babies, including when they hadn't properly obtained the informed consent of the pregnant women who were involved. Now, the response from Planned Parenthood and its defenders, and they are legion to this um, incriminating footage, was immediate and monotonous. The videos were deceptively edited, propaganda, which, of course, they weren't, and that was admitted on the stand by some of the uh, Planned Parenthood uh, leaders. The group's allies, including the media, have repeatedly uh, repeated rather this talking point and ad nauseum for years now, despite the fact that independent reviews of the footage found that edits were made only for brevity and none distorted the substance of the conversations recorded, a fact that was affirmed just this January in a ruling by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. Now, you might also recall that separate investigations by both a select panel in the U.S. House of Representatives and the Senate Judiciary Committee confirmed 
uh, enough of the, um, the footage that both committees referred several Planned Parenthood affiliates and the biotech firms and research institutions they partnered with to the FBI and Department of Justice for further investigation. Well, nevertheless, the only people who have yet to be punished in connection with the videos are Delighton and Merritt, the individuals who exposed fairly obvious wrongdoing. They plan to appeal the decision, of course, and there remain hope that justice will ultimately be restored. But this latest round of controversy has been a pretty harsh reminder for pro-life Americans. Our culture is so accustomed to the violence of abortion that many people see Daleiden and Merritt as the criminals instead of rightly recognizing the evil the evil on display in their videos and demanding that such evil be treated as a crime. At the same time, the story has, since 2015, hardly managed to garner more than a ripple of media coverage. And the coverage it has received has been almost entirely slanted in favor of Planned Parenthood's preferred talking points. Well, this blackout is understandable in a society determined to turn a blind eye to the fundamental question of our abortion debate. Last night in the um, House, I should say, the, um, the Democrats' presidential hopefuls debate, uh, abortion was a major issue. It was a human right uh, which is something of an oxymoron. Those three words together are actually four words. Abortion is a human right. Well, the videos puncture the euphemisms we like to use um, when we talk about abortion. These callous discussions of collecting fetal organs don't sound much like what we picture when we hear about a woman's right to choose. Well, that's why these videos have been so little discussed and why abortion rights supporters have worked so tirelessly to undermine and silence the video's contents and their creators. Regardless of whether the abortion industry executives on film indeed broke the law, no one, not even Planned Parenthood, denies that abortion providers routinely uh, possess fetal tissue. Where do those body parts come from? To whom do they belong? Well, this fight over the organization's videos is not just about the need to defend citizens who expose injustice. It's about forcing a society inured to the injustice to recognize what takes place in every abortion procedure every day, hour by hour, minute by minute. In fact, right now they're taking place right here in our community, in our city. And the people involved, those who are performing the procedures and those who are the recipients of them, those who are the victims of the procedures, their lives are inexorably altered. Well, on the, I suppose, upside, many Africans think that international efforts to promote abortion abroad are a prime example of cultural colonialism. Case in point, the just-concluded United Nations Population Fund's Nairobi Summit to commemorate the 25th anniversary of the International Conference on Population and Development. Rather than staying true to the outcome of the 1994 conference, this summit served to showcase the U.N.'s promotion of abortion, contraception, and controversial comprehensive uh, sexuality education. But member states from the developing world were not all on board. Good for them. At a press conference, a prominent member of Kenya's parliament uh, reminded attendees that the Kenyan constitution requires that every Kenyan has a right to life and life begins at conception. That's in Kenya's constitution. Another member of Kenya's parliament said that she and her colleagues were deeply concerned about the U.N.'s promotion of abortion under the banner of population and development policy. Yet nearly all of the 85 sessions that took place during the Nairobi summit advocated in one way or another for abortion and contraceptives. Thousands of abortion advocates, development specialists, U.N. bureaucrats descended upon Kenya to attend the summit. Again, this is held in Nairobi. 
It was ostensibly organized to improve health and education outcomes, particularly for women and children, based on promises made at the 1994 International Conference on Population and Development. But the U.N. Population Fund's Nairobi Summit circumvented the proper U.N. process of negotiation and consensus building by member states and instead became a vehicle for international abortion advocacy. Pro-life governments, including that of the U.S., the pro-life non-governmental organizations such as the Heritage Foundation, pushed back on the U.N.'s well-funded attempt to co-opt women's empowerment by foisting a radical agenda on the developing world. Well, the official U.S. commitment statement at the summit identified how the U.S. is promoting women's empowerment and health throughout the world. U.S. Ambassador Kyle McCarter penned an opinion piece that ran in several Kenyan newspapers expressing sentiments shared by many in Kenya that the challenges faced by women, girls and families require solutions that do not come at the expense of the family and the unborn. The U.S. also released a joint statement with Belarus, Brazil, Egypt, Haiti, Hungary, Libya, Poland, St. Lucia, Senegal, and Uganda, in which they articulated their strong commitment to improving women's health while respecting the importance of life, of family, and of children. Well, that statement categorically stated that there is no international right to abortion, and as the week went on, more countries decided to speak up in opposition to the Nairobi summit's priorities and tactics. We should be hopeful. The Kenyan Christian Professionals Forum, in cooperation with the Archdiocese of Nairobi, organized a conference called Pro-Life and Family-Friendly Side Events to ICPD25. That's abbreviation of the UN Population Fund's summit. It attracted representatives of many pro-life, pro-family, and faith-based groups from Africa, Europe, and the United States, including those who were denied admission to the Nairobi summit by the UN. Well, during the conference... Um, Pro-life organizations facilitated a high-level intergovernmental panel protecting life in global health policies, which featured representatives of the United States, Brazil, Hungary, Poland, Kenya, and the Holy See. Abortion advocates at the summit, including the leaders of the International Planned Parenthood Federation and Marie Stopes International, as well as UN officials, made derisive comments about pro-life resistance to their efforts. Sadly, they've also succeeded in attacking... um, attaching purse strings, rather, to the U.N.'s development agenda. The summit organizers boast of having raised uh, commitments of $1 billion from Austria, Canada, Denmark, Finland, Germany, France, Iceland, Italy, the Netherlands, Norway, Sweden, the United Kingdom, and the European Commission, as well as some $8 billion in pledges from the private sector that places um, African leaders in an unenviable position of choosing between much-needed development assistance and upholding their people's values. The international community demonstrated its non-maniacal focus on abortion, its maniacal focus, when the Director General of International Planned Parenthood Federation, Alvaro Bermajo, announced its commitments to the summit to thunderous applause. Those commitments include influencing 20 countries to change their laws on abortion, persuading 42 countries to adopt comprehensive sexuality education curriculums, and ensuring that at least six countries change their laws concerning sexual orientation and gender identity. The dismay of African nations and other pro-life countries is certainly warranted. The summit purported to address a broader range of issues important to women and girls, such as ending child marriage, female genital uh, mutilation, fighting gender-based violence, and improving maternal health. But in reality, the summit speakers list highlighted commitments and 
Uh, honorees illustrated the international community's laser-like focus on abortion and population control in spite of the strong cultural, moral, and religious objections of many of those countries who are supposed to be the beneficiaries of the UN's largesse. Change your view on the value of life, and we will give you lots and lots of money to develop. That's what they face. Keep them in your prayers as they attempt to stand firm against that pressure. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. I'm looking forward to this evening, the final dress rehearsal of the Portland Singing Christmas Tree, about to open its 57th season at the Keller Auditorium tomorrow night at 730. If you haven't already purchased your tickets, let me encourage you to get on that because it uh, will run this weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and the following weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then the Portland Singing Christmas Tree is no more. So I hope you will plan to join us uh, these next two weekends. Well, there's video footage that shows a high school girl choked up when her high school ruled that trans uh, students have unrestricted access to bathrooms and locker rooms. A high school student identified by the Daily Herald as Julia Burka chokes up as she discusses how her school district ruled on Thursday that boys essentially will have unrestricted access to bathrooms uh, of their choice, male or female. And the video footage, um, which, of course, we cannot see illustrates her concern. I feel uncomfortable that my privacy is being invaded, she says. She had a red nose and red eyes. As I am a swimmer, I do change multiple times naked in front of the other students in the locker room. I understand that the board has an obligation to all students, but I was hoping they would go about this in a different way that would also accommodate students like myself. They did not. A school district held a meeting at Palatine High School in Northwest Illinois, where board members voted to give unrestricted locker room and restroom access to transgender students, the Chicago uh, district decided. Well, the board voted for the decision in a meeting attended by almost 500 people. Students shall be treated and supported in a manner consistent with their gender identity, which shall include students having access to restrooms and locker rooms that correspond to their gender identity. The updated school policy states... A transgender student identified as Nova Made, who filed one of two lawsuits against the high school in 2017, is also shown in the video. Made's um, lawsuit asked that the trans students be able to change in the common areas of the girls' locker room rather than a private room, according to the advocate. It passed, it passed, Made reportedly said happily in the video, I'm ecstatic. It's definitely a first step forward in many more steps, uh, it's a great policy. Unfortunately, it's not everything we want, Maday explained. Well, the decision came after four years of controversy between parents and students and the board. The Department of Education ruled in 2015 that the district where the high school is located violated federal law by banning a student from using the girls' locker room, according to the advocate. The district eventually said the students could use the girls' locker room, prompting outrage and lawsuits from parents and students represented by the Alliance Defending Freedom. The policy will be implemented beginning January 7th, 2020, according to a statement from the superintendent of schools. So now anatomically correct boys can change uh, if they decide that they are uh, that they want to identify as female. They can change uh, with the girls, not in a private area where all uh, concerned are respected, 
but where girls are exposed to the male's uh, form and the male who identifies as a female um, will be present when the girls are also dressing and undressing. That's where we find ourselves in the 21st century. How's your how's your prayer life? Are you are you praying? Because the country, the culture, the kids, they need help. And if adults are not willing to stand, as these parents and uh, locals attempted to defend the rights of privacy of, uh, of girls in this case, um, and were unsuccessful, but there are other things that we can pray for, and perhaps um, finding other arrangements for students who are uncomfortable being unclothed in front of a biological male who identifies as a female, and we're to take that as legitimate and genuine and sincere and acceptable, regardless of what we may actually think. Just another thing to pray for about God. Give us wisdom, give our leaders wisdom, and protect our kids. Well, if you're wary of Christmas tunes freezing out fall celebrations, you're not just imagining the jingle bells and carols coming earlier every year. According to Spotify plays, um, tracked by Every Noise, most places started their surge in seasonal listening on the first of this month. But some countries started the party far earlier. The Philippines, for example, it's uh, heavily Catholic. And among the most devotedly Christian nations on earth is the first to start playing Christmas music, which actually has a Christian focus. Uh, With a spike on September 1st, the country streams classics as well as local favorites like uh, Jose Mari Chan's Christmas in Our Hearts. Well, by October 28th, the Festival uh, Philippines had competition from some largely secular but spirited countries, Iceland and the Scandinavian countries of Denmark, Norway, and Finland. Iceland currently um, leads the world in Christmas listening, with holiday tunes making up more than 8% of all streamed music, over triple the global average. The United States crossed into the Christmas music threshold, playing at least 2% Christmas songs within the past week. In recent years, many countries make the switch before December. That's uh, become uh, a relatively new phenomenon. But South American countries like Paraguay, Uruguay, Argentina, Argentina rather, and uh, Brazil don't start their Christmas music in earnest until Christmas Eve. While little um, Liechtenstein ends on a high note in the days leading up to uh, Christmas, 70% of music streamed in that country is holiday music, triple the global average. Once the holiday music begins, listeners can expect one song to dominate. That's Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You. has very little to do with Christmas. This happens to be a date on the calendar in which she wants to stay connected with her boyfriend, apparently. Well, for faith-based radio stations, many of which are listener-supported, the decision to switch to Christmas music means balancing the urge to be first with the the, uh, desires of listeners And uh, that's a back and forth. In fact, when we had our interview scheduled with Daniel Darling, you heard earlier in the program today, the characters of Christmas, James and I went back and forth. Is it too early? Is it too soon? Well, we decided because it would inspire uh, listeners to consider the characters of Christmas as we anticipate the season approaching in just days, uh, that it might be okay. Christmas music? Eh, not so much. Anyway, it is upon us. Um, One professor at Fuller Theological Seminary uh, says that um, the rhythms of the liturgical count- calendar, Advent, to Christmas tide, and so on, Epiphany, help Christians rehearse a story uh, of the world, who we are, and what God has done for us. And insofar as the music focuses on that, I suppose one could endure it whenever it begins. Sadly, much of the music has little to do with the birth of Christ, 
You'll hear it, but I hope the focus remains the reason for the season. I want to thank James Blinn for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Tomorrow, it's Fun Friday. I hope you'll join us. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.